to the DNet Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. It's always so kind to be referred to as expert analysis, but as I've said before on DNet Stumps, it's never about the expert analysis. What it is about is having a great deal of fun. And it is uh, always a great pleasure to be with you on the Dean at Stumps. I sincerely hope that you are still locked down and that you are adhering to what you are supposed to be doing. And of course, this is a great opportunity for you to reach out to friends and to family members who you haven't spoken to for a long time and just to assure them that you are there and that you are thinking of them. But it's also a very good time to acquaint yourself with various podcasts, none more so than the Dean at Stumps podcast. Hello, everybody, and a warm welcome once again to the DNAT Stumps podcast. This is your cricket fix. Not only do we focus on things that happen in Zimbabwe, but pretty much things that happen around the world. And uh, just in case you haven't heard before, we do have some fantastic interviews. So uh, get your family and friends to subscribe to the DNAT Stumps podcast and get them to have a listen. They will not be sorry, let me tell you. So I'd like to thank my very good friend who goes by the name of Wicked Wolf on Twitter. Uh, he is an incredibly good editor, and this particular podcast was made possible, I suppose, thanks to him, and some very, very good editing indeed. So have a listen to this. Right, uh, well, this is a, a rather unique situation that we have. We have a father and son joining us on Dean at Stumps, Alan and Mark Butcher. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking times out of your your pretty busy lives to have a chat, and welcome to Dean at Stumps. Pleasure, Dean. Not that busy Although, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life has suddenly got very unbusy, it, but, uh, and you'll know why. Yes, yes, absolutely, and uh, we sincerely hope that we can get to the bottom of that uh, rather quickly. Um, so, uh, anyway, let's talk about more uplifting things. Um, I, I, I'm sure a lot of people would like to hear a bit more about the two of you. Mark, I, I'm going to first of all start off with you. It's wonderful to hear you making such incredible strides, and especially on radio, me being more of a radio listener than a TV watcher, if you'll excuse the pun. It, it's wonderful to hear you, you doing such good things in the radio commentary box, and more in particular with TalkSport 2. Is that something that you envisaged after you decided to um, you know, bring your cricket career to an end? Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the radio thing... I've done a hell of a lot more television than I've done radio. And the radio thing came about simply because I'd done a, a little bit of work with TalkSport over the years um, on various bits and pieces. They just obviously started to get some more rights for, for England cricket because um, uh, they went out for tender. It wasn't just automatic that the BBC, that TMS would have them. Um, and uh, I was asked if I would, I'd be a, an analyst, you know, be a sort of, you know, expert comments man um, on the tour of Sri Lanka. And, um, and I sort of, uh, cheekily, I suppose, I just said to him, well, look, yeah, that'd be great, but how about um, giving me a shot at doing some ball-by-ball -ball stuff? I kind of, it was just more of a challenge, I suppose, sort of sitting there and, uh, and providing comments after the event. Well, it's great and good fun. It's kind of something that wasn't didn't really float my boat at the time. Um, and 
fortunately, the uh, the guy, uh, the producer, John Norman, sort of said yes and gave me a shot at doing some ball by ball, by ball during the Sri Lanka tour. And Mark Nicholas was heading up the, the operation there. Um, but then they got they won the rights for South Africa, and Mark obviously was, was hosting for, uh, for Supersport um, for the England-South Africa series down there. Uh, and they needed somebody else to host it. And, and John put it to me, asked me if I wanted to, to, to run the show. And I was just, I, I leapt to the chart. So, I mean, it's more, more by my accident than design, I suppose. But I guess one of the things you had to adapt to quite quickly was remembering that you have to describe the bowler running in and, and actually releasing <laughs> the ball as opposed to waiting for the bat to hit the ball and then describe the shot. <laughs> well, yeah, it is, it's a very different skill. And, and which was part of the reason why I wanted to do the ball by ball thing because it was, it's just another, another part to play or another thing to learn about about broadcasting really I, I kind of I didn't go into doing the, the TV work and the broadcasting work with a sort of with a view that it was kind of my, my right as a former player to sort of to end up in that position I wanted to to go into it to learn to learn how to do something new you know and so that's that's always been my attitude towards it and I've been lucky enough um, to be invited back when I, <laughs> after I've made a mess of things the first time. So, and, you know, and, and that way you, you gain experience and you, and you learn the, the, the different, the different attributes, the different things that are required to sort of, to, uh, to bring the game alive to the listener. We're going to talk a bit more about your career because I'm probably one of your biggest fans when you were uh, back uh, playing for the back for when you made your debut, especially back in 1998 in an incredibly good series against the South Africans. But Alan, I'd like to bring you in here now. You obviously have an incredibly fond or you have very fond memories of Zimbabwe. You started coaching here in Zimbabwe in 2010 and uh, coached up until 2013. I mean, it, it's an incredible experience for you to have. Uh, you've done, you've achieved quite a bit, I guess, is what I'm what I'm getting to. Because you, you know, you played a lot of cricket for Surrey. You even had the joy of playing against your son Mark. That must have been quite something, which you can, I'm sure, tell us about. And then from playing huge amounts of county cricket, you then came to coach a team which, I suppose, has never really been the greatest team in the world. But there was a time when. They earned a bit more respect, if I could put it that way, uh, from the international opposition. So what was it like coming to look after a team who had a couple of world, world beaters and Andy Flower, Heathstreak, and a couple of others as well, to a team who are now once again trying to regather and, and find their feet? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, you're right. I did really enjoy it. I had a great time with that. You know, I still keep in contact with with uh, several people that uh, that I worked with during that period of time. For me, I, well, first of all, I was out of work, so that. You know, the, but when I got a call from Dave Houghton to to tell me that the job was was going and that he thought that I would be the right kind of person to take on the job, I, I, I leapt at it because I'd I'd been to Zimbabwe a couple of times before. I knew, you know, I knew what the country was about, and I, I, I you know, I understood that it would be, um, you know, a, a difficult task, but at the same time, I thought one that would be very rewarding and re uh, enriching, and it certainly was. I, I, you know, sort of, I, I learned a lot about myself. I, I think I became a better coach from my time there, and I didn't sort of 
disappointing that I've not had a job since. So <laughs> I haven't been able to put that into practice, but I had a great time. And, um, and I think that, you know, we, in as much as we could, because it's not an easy job for any coach, uh, you know, I think that we did go forward for a period of time, but it's always, you know, it's always a little bit in Zimbabwe, one step forward and two back, as you will know very well. And uh, I suppose uh, an interview with Alan Butcher wouldn't be complete if you didn't tell us a story about the Good Ngurungu. The story, the story of, of Mark's debut. Uh, the story of the uh, good, the, your book, The Good Murungu. Ah, right, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, um, I just, I just woke up one morning. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Wake up one morning about half past two and said, you know, I just thought, you know, I'm going to write that story because I felt that it was, I thought it was a good story. You know, it, it, it would explain a lot about Zimbabwe cricket, the people who perhaps didn't know too much about it. Um, and I just enjoyed the, um, the challenge of writing it. And, um, it, it was my, a bit of a, my, a love affair to, to the country as well, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, it, it did. It, yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd have to say that. And, um, you know, I still feel the, you know, the same way. And I know, Mark, Mark when you, Went to commentate on the World Cup qualifiers. You, you, you enjoyed it for that short period you were there. Yeah, yeah, I, I would have no hesitation in going back. It was, yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting, uh, Market. You should say that because uh, people took very quickly to your style of commentary in Zimbabwe. They liked that easy, uh, flowing manner that you had. But I mean, obviously, you played against Zimbabwe on a couple of occasions. Two, th mm -hmm. two, two, two certainly two thousand and three. You played against them. I'm not sure if you played in two thousand. No, that, that was it. Yeah, yeah. two thousand and three. And Zimbabwe were horribly outclassed and outplayed by a good England side. But Zimbabwe didn't play particularly good cricket. So. I mean, what was the the feeling amongst the England players? Was there a certain amount of complacency bordering on uh, derision when they knew that they were going to play Zimbabwe, who had obviously lost a, a couple of key players, and Andy Flower in particular? You know, so the, once mm. again they found themselves having to regroup. They had his streak, but he was, I suppose, reaching the end of his career in terms of international cricket, wasn't he? So uh, a couple of young players who looked promising to attend a tie were just taken over as the vice-captain. But it was horribly one-sided. I mean, you know, was there a form of complacency and thinking, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do playing a side like Zimbabwe? Not, not really, no. I mean, look, one of the things about playing test cricket, at the, particularly because it was early, wasn't it? It was May. Because yeah. South Africa were coming over later on in the, in the summer, was that you could you can very easily kind of find yourself on your backside and on a, on a you know you lose the toss on a on a green one say lords for example and you know you find yourself getting embarrassed and knocked over for not very many just ask the England team that played against Ireland before Ireland. the Ashes this year yeah. so I don't think there was ever it wasn't a case of any sort of complacency one of the things we knew that you know if we if we played to sort of eighty percent of 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 what we were capable of, given that, that that you know they were an experienced side away from home, that we were that we should win. But no, I mean there's still, as you said, there's still players there that commanded respect. And you know England were not by any means the the, the finished article as a team. Then we were just starting to build a bit of um, a bit of momentum in terms of you know of results outside of Ashes series. Um, and it was the, and it was also the series before Michael Vaughan took over as, as captain. You know, the, 
so we won those two test matches under under NASA, one at Lords and one at Durham. And then we well, then, then the series started against South Africa in July and two test matches in, NASA resigned and, and Michael Vaughan took over. So, you know, the, the team, although it had a, a core of players who would go on to be the, the guys that won the Ashes in 2005, there are a lot of comings and goings for us as well. We were probably concentrating more on ourselves than we were the opposition. I think that's probably the fairest way to put it. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. And, and what was it like? I mean, it was just uh, practically halfway through the South African series. If I remember correctly, NASA started off captaining the series. And then what, was it into about the second or the third test match when Michael Vaughan took over the captain's team? Yeah, so uh, Edgbaston and Lords, um, Graham Smith got double hundreds, I think. Yes. <laughs> um, and... Uh, NASA, I think NASA dropped him at cover um, at, at Lords on about ten before he went on to get another, uh, you know, back-to-back double hundreds, and then South Africa trounced us in that Test match, and then I think NASA stepped down and Michael took over the third Test. So it was, a, you know, it was a five-match series. We 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 got away with a draw in the first one at Edgbaston because it rained, lost comfortably at Lords. I think I don't know if we went to Headingley after that. I can't remember, but but the series ended up two two anyway. We had back to back wins. I think we were two nil down with two to play, or or we or we levelled up at Trent Bridge, then lost at Headingley to go two one down, and then won the last one at, at the Oval under Michael Vaughan. So we had two captains in the series. It ended up being a two two. Um, Graham Thorpe came back in the last Test match. Um, there were, you know all kinds of things happened that summer. Um, and so the Zimbabwe series, as as a lot of series in the early part of the season do, sort of was forgotten by the end because it was a it was a pretty magnificent series between us and the South Africans. And and I guess um, the the two thousand that that series, or should I say, the Test match at Lords, will very much be remembered for two things: a brilliant hundred by Andrew Flintoff, despite the fact that England lost by a long way. But I think we mm. we really, in my opinion, that was the first exhibition of batting at international level that we saw, and I stand correct. Uh, but that's my memory, is seeing Andrew Flintoff in full cry, really taking on Mackay and Tini and Paul Adams, eventually Adams getting him out. But then the other side of it was Mackay and Tini who took 13 wickets uh, in that, yeah. that test. That must, I mean, just as a cricket lover, watching two uh, promising players, Mackay and Tini getting his 13 wickets, Flintoff being very aggressive in a losing cause, but it must have been wonderful to watch as a, as a cricket lover and as a spectator, I would imagine. Yeah, well, I mean, Mackay sort of, you know, he'd been he'd been in the shadow of, of the greats and of, of Pollock and and Donald before that. I mean, I obviously I played in Mackay's debut match, at, which would have been at Headingley in '98, and so he'd been around for a long time, but hadn't quite had the respect, you know, as being sort of leader of, of the attack. Um, I think that Lord's performance was, um, you know, was the start of of him starting to believe that he, you know, Pollock was about to retire and he was, you know, to, to put him on the road to, to being the spearhead that he became. No, Freddie's innings was magnificent. He kept donging them into the <laughs> into the grandstand <laughs> and into the, the mound stand and whatever. Um, but I was more upset because I, I should have got under myself, but I clipped my legs down half volley off Andrew Hall to mid-wicket oh, and walked yes. off a 70 in that second. <laughs> so it was another another glorious failure from my part as we as we went down went down in flames. <laughs>
one of the uh, highlights of your of your career, and there were many though, uh, Mark, was the, your your debut hundred, which was against South Africa, your first Test match. Am I right in saying you batted at number three in that one? Or, or no, you actually opened. You you opened the batting, didn't you? No, no, I opened. No, I I played because I played. I had played. I made my debut against Australia in '97. Oh, that's correct. So I played yes. five out of six, five out of six Test matches in the in that series. Then somehow managed to play five Test matches in the West Indies on the tour finishing up with a pair in Antigua and sort of thought well I might not play test cricket for a little while now um, but sort of I don't know what happened beginning of 98 I was I don't know I can't exactly remember but I was in the I was in the side from the first test match with, um, against South Africa um, Athens and I put 170 for the first week at Edgbaston and, and I and I got runs I think in the next one as well at, at Lord's Oh, no, I didn't know. It wasn't at Lord's. You went somewhere else. Anyway, I can't remember. I broke my thumb anyhow. I missed the two test matches in the middle. So I missed the one at Old Trafford where England clung on for a draw. And I missed the one at Lord's. That's right. Those two, the two that I missed. And then I came back in to play at Trent Bridge, which was the famous Atherton, Donald, Jewell. Ah, yes. And, uh, and then Headingley, which was the decider. It was one all going into Headingley. And I made 100. We batted first and I made 100 in the first innings. 116, I believe it was. Mm, right. Yeah, out, out of not very many, actually. I think when I got out, I think we had... I, we had 170 or something on the board. I had one of those days where it kind of where, where everyone else was missing it, and I kept hitting it out the middle. Was that when I was making a comeback for Surrey? That's right. You were playing when you were 44. That's right. Yeah. You played that day as well. So, yeah. so let's, let's, let's get to that. I, I was actually going to talk about the Atherton Donald contest. It, it, it would have been an incredible spectacle to watch, you know, Donald running in and bowling and the glove being taken, Boucher taking the catch and umpire giving it not out. I actually just yeah. re watched those highlights again. Uh, again, excuse the pun, watched slash listened to the highlights uh, just the other day, watching this incredibly growing uh, frustration from Alan Donald, which would have boiled over into anger. Mike Asserton, as resolute as he always was, that must have been spectacular to watch. Yeah, well, no, I was, I think I, I was at the non-striker's end when when the whole thing started, <laughs> I think. And then, on, and then I got out, I think Donald got me out here with W. So I was up in the dressing room. And, and, you know, you're starting to watch this thing unfold and, um, you know, the atmosphere in the ground was, was electric, as you'd imagine. You know, the absolute silence as Donald was running in, you know. And it was, you know, it was, it was pretty terrifying to watch. I didn't, I knew I didn't have to bat again, but it kind of didn't make any difference sort of hiding behind the sofa in the dressing room watching this. <laughs> um, and then when, and then when Bouch dropped, uh, dropped him, uh, dropped, did he drop NASA? Did he drop NASA? I think yes, 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 he did. I, I think, think he probably did. did. Yes, yes, and AD, yeah. yeah, and, and AD sort of screamed into the into the heavens, and um, you know it was just it was yeah absolutely riveting cricket. And I think you know that funnily enough, I've I've often thought looking back on that on that series that the thing that won us the series was the fact that AD was probably you know down on down on rat power by about twenty five percent by the time we got to heading me. Those matches were back to back. And that spell, he threw so much into it that he kind of he didn't have a great deal left by the time we got to the to the last one. So, you know, Ather's little uh, Ather's little sneaky one might have won us the series in more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the comeback match for you, Alan. Uh, you were approaching the end of what was a very good and successful career with Surrey. I've lost you. Are you still there? Yes, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I think, okay. think um, Sarri had had a bit of a disciplinary problem from the night before in a, a day-night 
40-over game or something. So uh, I was down with the second team at Taunton, having just got, I think I got a naught that day. So I wasn't, I was in great nick. But, uh, yeah, but you, you you've not pointed out that you're actually coach and have been retired as a player for. I, I, well, true. Yes, I have been. I, I've been what retired for at least six years, probably eight. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I got a call from the coach Keith Medlicott to say he wanted me to play. I'm thinking, well, surely that's not good. There's a young player. There was Michael Carberry who was scoring loads of runs. He could have played, but they they wanted me to to play what I did uh, last winter there was a, 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 a get together at the Oval from you know players of older generations with the current squad where I had to apologize well not apologize but admit to Meadows that on the morning at, of the start of the game I damaged my calf and I, and I wasn't fit but at that stage there's no way I could admit to him that I get, I couldn't play so I, I sort of hobbled through the game looking after this dodgy calf of mine. But I, I, I didn't tell him at the time that um, <laughs> I shouldn't really be out there. Well, I knew I shouldn't be out there right from the start, but I was also not fit. <laughs> and, and what is it like? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Mark, you as a youngster, you would have you would have probably watched a couple of VHS tapes, I would imagine, of, of dad scoring runs. You would have listened to a little bit mm. of radio because you got you have the luxury of listening to a ball by ball county cricket. You would have watched him, I'm sure, as a, as a young boy. And I'll suddenly oh, pl plenty. Do. I mean, I, I kind of lived it. It felt like I did anyway. It felt like I lived at the Oval in my younger days as we were up at the up there most of the time my brother and I during the summer holidays so you know I was uh, I was I was always very very proud of the fact that 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 played and um you know was always just as nervous uh watching him walk out about as he probably was later on when I did you know mm -hmm. so yeah it was, it's just it's just one of those one of those things one of the great uh, great things about the game the fact that we ended up playing in the second game, playing in the same game against one another, was a was another thing. But you know, I was always incredibly proud of, of, of Dad's career and thought he was, as many people did and still do, that he was bloody hard done by not to have. Well, I tell you what, I'll let you into a little story. I was interviewing Jeff Boycott right. at uh, at Lords. <laughs> I was sort of hosting a Q and A with him. You know, he was telling telling everybody how fabulous he was, and he and he said to me. Um, he said, oh, how many test matches? He asked me how many test matches I played. So I said, 71. And he, he said, 71. And I'm not going to attempt to do his voice, but 71. <laughs> he said, your dad only played one and he could play. <laughs> so, so there you go. So I thought, yeah, oh my so goodness. Uh, I think that concludes our chat for the day. And, uh, people do enjoy that story in my after dinner speeches. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That is typical Jeffrey Boycott. It's a pity you couldn't do the Yorkshire accent, but uh, nevertheless. Yeah, well, I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't really, I hadn't, I need to steal myself. Right, right, yeah. right. right. Um, all right, so I, we could carry on talking forever. I'm sure you gentlemen do still have family commitments and, and so on. So we'll, we'll begin to slowly wrap it up. But um, what, for you, Alan, would be the highlight of your, your career as a county cricketer? I mean, you would have faced some incredible bowlers at the pump of your career. Just give us an idea of who you faced and which, the bowl, which, which bowler gave you the toughest time. And then, of course, your, your highlights as well. Well, I'd say, I, I will start with the highlight because I was asked this last Friday. I went to speak for an, an ex-teammate of mine 
Graham Monkhouse, who did, who had uh, had a decent career at the Oval. And I was at the Q and A afterwards. I was asked this question, and I always answer it in the same way right. that the highlight of my career was watching Mark get 173 not out against Australia <laughs> to uh, win the game at Headingley in so 2001. That's, that, that's always my yeah. my highlight. As far as the, uh, uh, you know, uh, during the period that uh, I played, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that back in my day, but we had all the world's best quick bowlers in county cricket at that stage. You know, the, the Roberts, the Holdings, the Marshalls, Jeff Thompson, Vince van der Bale, obviously from South Africa. So it was Imran Khan, Courtney Walsh. You know, just the roll call. Uh, Kirtley Ambrose got me out with the first ball in the bowling county cricket for Northampton. Right. Uh, you know, the list goes on. So it was a, it was a tough era to play county cricket in, and you know, I'm you know pretty proud of of, of my career uh, for for that fact really I, I, I doubt that there was ever a time in county cricket there were so many great fast bowlers operating you know from April till September you know that sort of for me that kind of thumbs it up but I mean there were also I didn't really the spinners generally they were mainly sort of finger spinners during the period of time I played Derek Underwood was obviously fantastic John Embury, Phil Edmonds, uh, but we didn't. You didn't have so many of the wrist spinners in county cricket as as they have done in the last, say, fifteen, twenty years. So that was a an experience that I, I missed a little bit. But I had a really enjoyable time, and I and I, I loved you know the teammates that I played with, both for Surrey and for Glamorgan. Had some fantastic times, and enjoyed the coaching as well. That. Mm. Was also that was also fun in a different way. And and Mark, I mean, I, I would imagine your you had a bit of a mixed bag in terms of your international career. There would have been some disappointing battles against uh, the Aussies and the Ashes, uh, but mm. I, I would imagine there would have been some all of incredibly tough. <laughs> yes, all of them, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Every single one I played, one I played twenty Test matches against Australia, and and, were, and yeah, didn't yeah didn't win a didn't win a, a an Ashes series in four, and I reckon I'm just trying to think how many wins we had in those twenty games. We won, we lost the series three two in my debut series, and we won two so two Test matches in that one. Then the first series down in Australia, we won the, the Boxing Day Test in Melbourne, but lost that one 3-1. Then the 2001, the, the one that my dad's talking about, we, we lost that one 4-1. Um, and then we, we took a Test match off them again, the last Test of the series in 2002-3. Um, so, yeah, five five tests out of out of 20 on the winning side mm-hmm. so um they were quite they were quite good team that lot <laughs> they were a decent side yeah mm. i was just thinking then you you said 20 test matches did you say mm. 20 tests that's uh, that's 100 how many how many of those 100 days did you actually play cricket on do you think <laughs> Steady. Yeah, there, well, I, can, there few, I can think of a few three-day finishes in those in those series, um, for sure. Like, well, two, two, test match, I, two, two 
two deaths at Perth were definitely, definitely only three days. I think we yeah. had a three-dayer in Nottingham yeah. in in 2001. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't have been 100 days, put it that way. <laughs> no, but, you know, no. I, I got sad. I made, even though there's only sort of, there's only ever one innings that anybody remembers as, as far as I'm concerned. It's, yes, I made three hundreds against Australia and two of them were away from home. So I'm, I'm pretty yeah. proud of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's very, very special. Um, and I mean, the, the, obviously, the likes of facing McGrath, Lee, Warren, um, you know, as a batsman. And then when you're in the field, you, you're up against Steve War, Mark War, Ricky Ponting, Hayden, Gilchrist. I mean, those are all formidable characters in their own way, aren't they? I would imagine mm. very, very tough uh, on the field, but off the field, uh, were, were, were relations a bit better off the field than on the field? Yeah, they were pretty good. You know, I mean, the, I think one of the things about that team, and one of the the the, the things that, that we didn't do particularly well, and I know that the the, uh, the players are much better at it nowadays, and partly because of the way that the T Twenty League just meld everybody together, and you know, these guys all know each other around the around the circuit much better than we did in those days. But Australia sort of went out of their way to to sort of create an aura around them that made them difficult to play against. You know, they weren't particularly friendly around the trap. You didn't see them much after after play. But but that was basically because of, that was our fault as much as anything. I think our guys were were a little bit sort of too standoffish sort of too English about the whole thing and and sort of you know once you actually got to talk to talk to a few of them Ponting and, and Damien Martin I remember having a conversation with those guys early on in the 2001 series where you know we'd all had a few drinks and we would sort of you know blowing smoke up each other's behinds about how great we thought you know I was talking to Ponting about his pool shot and saying how do you do this and how do you do that and then Damien Martin chirps up and says well you know your you know your cut shot's unbelievable and I'm kind of thinking well hang on a second these guys sort of actually do think we can play a little bit but they always gave off the uh, the impression that they thought we were terrible um and that was uh, that was quite a big moment for me i wish there'd been a few more of our guys there that they weren't i was the only one <laughs> so you know because they were talking about people there was like beer Caddick involved was it? but it was there may have been talking about so you know if andy caddick could have heard ponting talking about you know how the way he made the ball bounce and leave him and how uncomfortable that was he would have he would have walked 10 feet taller and he was a pretty big bloke anyway yes, you know it's just that that kind of um yeah, and I think that was that was something that Australia did brilliantly. They kind of built up this this barrier between them and everybody else that made people feel that they were sort of less than human. You know, they kind of didn't have any frailties, but they had all the same ones as we did. We just couldn't find them. <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting because um, in 2003, Zimbabwe had a two-test match series against Australia. And again, the Zimbabweans also thought that the Aussies would have thought nothing of them. But afterwards, Justin Langer said to Stuart Carlisle and Craig Wishart, if I could hit the ball as hard as you two would, you know, I, it would put me in very good stead. And they had a lot of really good things to say about Zimbabwe, who they obviously also demolished quite spectacularly. Matthew Hayden with his 380 and yeah, yeah. Uh, everything else like that. But they were genuinely complimentary about some of the Zimbabwean players. So mm. it, it's important that you have that very tough as nails um, situation on the field, but that you're able to also sort of be a bit more human as soon as you cross that boundary line and you have something cold in your hand as well, isn't it, gents? Mm, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Dad, you you had you had the, the fortune to sort of be in charge when 
you know, with Brendan Taylor around. I mean, what a fantastic player he is. Yeah. Oh, he, he is a very good player. Oh, um, right. what's that? Sorry. That's, that's a Skype call. That's, no that's a Skype call coming in from somebody. <laughs> ah, oh, we've taken um, longer than we thought. No, no, um, no, it's fine. Okay. Yeah, there were, I mean, we did. I, I, Brendan was a fantastic player. And, he, you know, you could stand... Uh, you know, in anyone's company, and and look a good player. Somebody like uh, Tatenda Taibu also was there. I thought he was a fantastic cricketer. Oh, yeah. But then it's that I guess that as a collective, if you don't have enough of those players, and you know, uh, England probably didn't have quite enough of those players to stand up toe to toe and and look Australia in the eye, and and, and then you you know you do get that. That, that sort of that feeling of being a bit inferior and in that you can't put yourself up against these people. As much as you try to think positively about what you can do, it, if you keep getting drilled all the time, it's bloody hard to do it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You know, until you have enough good players and enough belief to, to stand up there and stand toe to toe, look them in the eye, take them on. It's it's a difficult thing to do. It's a bit like you know most sides uh, in in earlier times against the West Indies. It was mm -hmm. not even Australia could stand toe to toe with them and look them in the eye. They actually yeah. decided not to tour the Caribbean because they they knew they couldn't compete, and that's very un-Australian. Yeah, me. I mean it's a, there is a it's a critical mass thing, isn't it? And I think you know it's something that I experienced as a as an international player in the lead up to the 2005 Ashes series was that gradually start, which kind of started back at the, in that Zimbabwe tour in 2003. So we had, I can't, we had some like Anthony McGrath played in that test match. Jimmy Anderson made his, made his debut um, in the test match at Lords. Um, there were all kinds of players who kind of got, who, who fell by the wayside between 2003 and 2005 um, and I you know I stayed I was in the team 2003 all the way up till the West Indies tour 2004 and then we went to South Africa did we go to South Africa? yes when absolutely did, we we did indeed end of 2004 it was yeah 2004 yeah, 2004 that's, five. Yeah, that's, that's right, right. Yeah. that's right so I did my wrist to 2004 yeah. 5 mm. but you could see what was basically what was happening was is that the, the guys who were just not quite good enough or just you know, on the wrong side of the, their career, just start, would filter out, and and this critical mass built up of of players who would be able to do exactly what Dad's talking about, which is, you know, you had a fast bowling attack of Jones, Hoggard, Harmison, Flintoff. So, I mean, those those four guys terror, terrorised Brian Lara in in the, the Caribbean, sort of like mm. a, you know, twelve months before until Lara got four hundred in, in the last Test match, but in the Test match, you know, in the in the three <laughs> Test matches before that, they kept hitting him on the head and then knocking him over. You know, it was you know, you could just see that this bowling attack was growing into a mm. into a real force. Batsmen were starting to score, you know, big big runs. And doing them at speed as well, all that kind of stuff, which was, you know, entirely what the what you had to be able to do if you were going to beat Australia at their own game. You know, it, it, sometimes you're fortunate, aren't you? You're fortunate that you have um, Zimbabwe had that period where they had five or six players who would, you know, would have fancied their chances of getting into most international elevens around the place. You bring the other guys along who are slightly less less good because you've got enough of you've got enough critical mass in the dressing room to stand up yeah. for yourselves, yeah. and you turn that into results, and that's and that's how it works. 
So I, I'm of the opinion now, obviously, I've only been following England cricket since about 1992. You know, I mean, before then, there was no satellite television or anything like that for us to, to do what we do now. I'm of the opinion that that combination of Hoggard, Harmison, Jones, Flintoff, Giles, that those five bowlers, in my opinion, were one of the best England bowling attacks as a team. So you had individual greats in the past, you know, obviously mm. Truman and many, many others. But And Darren Goff was an outstanding bowler as well. But I often felt that Goffy didn't always get the support from the rest of the bowling attack consistently. Whereas that 2005 Ashes win, to me, every single bowler consistently, the one backed up the other one. So you had Hoggard with his swing, you had Harmison with his pace and bounce, you had Flintoff with his pace and reverse swing, uh, you had Jones who did something very similar, I suppose a bit more skiddier, and then you had mm. Ashley Giles who was a very good container but also got very crucial wickets as well. Mm. Yeah, and, and, sc- and scored runs, you know, he yeah. batted eight, I think, didn't he, Gilo, in that, in that attack, so, yeah, I think that, I, I think you're right, simply because the, the, you didn't have to have a certain type of, uh, of pitch for them to be able to bowl, to bowl a team out twice because, yeah. as you said, they all... You know, Jones was reverse swing. Hoggard was 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 genuine swing. Harmus, you know, Harmison and Flintoff could bowl or anything because they were just so strong and quick and tall. And so, yeah, and and like you say, Gilo definitely played his part in that. Um, in terms of give, being able to give the guys a, a rest so that they could always be fresh. So yeah, I mean that's you know, that was the thing. The Australian bowling attack was the same. They had, mm. although they only would play four bowlers, Warren bowled bowled the overs of two people and. You know, McGrath, Gillespie, Lee all had their different attributes, which made them uh, a fabulous team. I think you're making a point there, a good point about that attack being able to bowl on all pitches, because up until that time, we had been playing or we were forced to play really sort of more English style bowlers Mm. and always looking to have pitches that would help them out. But of course, all the time the ball zipped about, their, their bowlers were very good at that as well. So it was always a problem for us to get runs. So around 2005, we could afford to play on decent pitches. Our batsmen yeah. could get runs and the bowlers still had the skills to get people out. They had the pace to reverse the normal swing. They, you know, it just, just all happened at the right time. That's fascinating. That's yeah, wow! I tell you what, absolutely wonderful getting into the minds of these two, father and son, Mark and Alan Butcher. So, so now, obviously, Mark, you touched on something very briefly earlier on in the chat, and you you spoke about all these T Twenty leagues happening around the world, where players now get to know each other. I'd like to hear from both of you, and you can, it, you know, whoever would like to answer first, please go ahead. What are your thoughts and opinions of these T Twenty leagues? I mean, it, it probably is good for the development for. The, uh, for the game, but how much do you think players still appreciate team team spirit? Because you, you know they're playing a lot of T Twenty cricket, then suddenly they have to now represent their country again. Is there still some form of understanding the joy of of winning, and and you know everything else that you would have remembered from playing Test cricket before all the T Twenty mayhem started? You know where it was a real pleasure to actually win a game of cricket for your county side and a real honour and privilege to win a game for your country uh, well I mean look I, I think I think there's a there's a little bit of fatigue you know I've been I've been around a lot of these leagues and I want to I want to sort of 
talk out of turn about any of them, but I think a lot of these guys, you see the same guys turning up to the same competitions, whether it be in the Caribbean, whether it be playing in the Blast, whether it be playing, you know, the, the Pakistan Super League was just gone. And so for the players, it can become a little bit of a merry-go-round and they come in and they, they try at their best and all that kind of stuff. But at the, at the end of the day, you, you're not playing for the shirt in the same way as you would be if it was your your home club or your or your country. But, but that's just the nature of the beast. What it's what it's done is brought huge amounts of people into cricket grounds to come and watch, you know, to come and watch the sport. Um, you know, not everywhere is as, luck, as lucky as we are here in England, whereby you know all the Test matches are always sold out. The international games always have big crowds, and so you know to, to to sort of be dragging people back in and the huge numbers that we see around the world in these 2020 leagues is is basically the the vital part of it. You know, the, the players, if you ask them, they'd all they'd all say, oh yeah, you know, it doesn't matter whether I'm playing for Trinidad or I'm playing for whoever, I'm still, you know, giving them 100%. But there is a, it does come a point where you're kind of, you're, you're packing the bag, you new hotel, new teammates, you, you do it, it's all over in three and a half, four weeks, and you go home again, and there's a, there's a check at the end of it. And so, you know, you'd, you'd have to be an extraordinary human being to kind of, to not, to not feel that way at some point if you start on that road. Uh, what do you reckon, Adam? Uh, what, is your, what is your take on that? Yeah, I, I, it's difficult, as, as Mark just said, it's difficult to see how you can have the same feeling for the, you know, you're playing for maybe four or five franchises and your, your, your county or province or whatever. It, it, it's difficult to see how you can divide all that up into so many slices, you know. I think I think also uh, I can see that the econ- economics of it and the fact that so many people want to see it, they, but I think that it's having an effect on batsmanship and international level. I mean, there are still some fine fine players, but untalented players. But the game is played in a in a different way, so it's definitely had an effect mm. on international cricket, on Test cricket. I mean, some of it's you could argue is good because the game's speeded up a bit. Although England have decided, and I, in my view, quite rightly, that their best method of playing test cricket is to try and cut out the risk a bit, bat for much longer, and 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 score more runs as opposed to for the last five years or no three years probably. We've tried to do everything at you know sort of at, at, at pace and. 30 for three every every game and and struggled as a result so I, th- I think they're doing it the right way whether people want to watch that or not I suppose in yeah. 10 years time we'll find out yeah and of course uh, in the, at the end at the end of people you know you, you'll people will get the cricket that they want to go and watch I suppose it's it, at the end of the day because they've got more choice now in order to do that so and that's a fair point that's a very good point that you make i guess because what we what we now have is that the the connoisseurs if you want to if you'd like to call them that they have the option of watching their test cricket and their county cricket and then the the slightly more exuberant players or or spectators they can then initially get their feet in the water uh watch a bit of t20 cricket and and i guess at times it's happened that once they've got used to the temperature of the water they then decide that they want to wade out and get away from the safety net of of T20 cricket and, and explore, you know, the 50-over cricket, which will then hopefully lead them into the real stuff, which, of course, is four-day cricket and test cricket. 
Well, that's the hope, isn't it? But it is the hope. But I also think that, that a lot more, you know, that I've been talking about, as Bumble says quite comically at times, he says, you know, cricket, Test cricket's been dying since 1963 when he made his <laughs> debut or something. You know, it's not, this, is not a, yeah. this is not a new conversation we're having here. No. It's, always, it's always an anachronism. It's always too slow for the, for the pace of modern life. And he was talking the yeah. 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but there are a hell of a lot of people who watch. Just, people don't watch it the same way now. You know, you're not, you don't have the huge crowds in the, in the grounds for five days or four and a half days or three and a half days or whatever it is around the world. But people are watching it on TV. They're following mm. it online and listening to it on radio. There's just so many more different ways yeah. of consuming it now yeah. than there were before. You know, I think the biggest threat to t- test match cricket is not necessarily T20 cricket. I think it's bad. poor test cricket is the problem. Yeah. And you get poor test cricket unfortunately at times because some countries cannot afford to have the first class structures that you need in order to build a base of players that will build you a good team you know Ireland is a, is a, is a case in point for me because you know as much as they've enriched World Cups and, and have, have done everything they possibly could to get themselves to test match status I don't see how you can sustain test match status with a with a four a fourteen competition no. in in a country that that still hasn't really sort of got been bitten by the bug of the game, and you've cut off the uh, the the ability for your players to come and play as overseas uh, to come and play county cricket because they're now close to classes overseas. Yeah, so it's it's you know time will tell you know how how Ireland can overcome these problems but but what you're going to get is teams not wanting to give them four or five test match series they're going to struggle from a lack of the uh, a lack of exposure to the game um which is what you you need plenty of in order to get better at it and in the end the whole thing might stall you know and, and i wish them all the best in the world that it doesn't and we've seen you know how a cricket mad country like zimbabwe can have can have problems in exactly the same way, you know, you, if you don't have the players coming through, you don't have the structures that encourage players to come through, then your your national team struggles and people walk away from the sport because they don't want to see their team getting smashed every week. Mm. Uh, all very valid points. Gentlemen, I am sure um, you've uh, enjoyed yourselves, but I'm sure you'd like to move on and I've got things to do, places to go. <laughs> well, not really places to go because uh, you should be staying at home, but uh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for, for being on Dean at Stumps, a very small, arbitrary little podcast from Zimbabwe, but it really is appreciated. Um, I don't know if there's anything that any of you or both of you would like to add in, in conclusion. And you know, just, I mean, it was a wonderful cricket chat, I think. No real structure to it, admittedly, but we did have a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'd just, I, I just like to say, you know, if, if any of my uh, friends and acquaintances and well, even even those who possibly ended up not necessarily my friends, and they'll know who they are. <laughs> I, I I wish them all the well, uh, all the best during this this difficult time. I hope that they'll all listen to the the advice, stay safe, and and stay healthy. And um, I'd like to wish them all the best. Yeah, um, yeah, me too. Um, but I'd like to make a special shout out to uh, a certain Mister. Ryan Cairns of uh, the Royal Harari Golf Club. Ah, yes. Um, Cairnsy, I'll be out to see you soon, my friend. <laughs> Absolutely. Gentlemen, once again, thank you very much indeed uh, for, for giving, me, uh, giving us so much of your time. And uh, I'd like to wish both of you all the very best for whatever the future holds for you. Thank you for being on Dean at Stumps. No problem. Cheers, Dean.
You've been right, listening thanks, guys. to D-Net Stars, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 